you know, what I want to know is is how how does one get involved in doing rock work as a woman? Do you really, really want to know? Or do you just want the rehearsed response that I always give? What would happen if we chose to really tell the truth about ourselves? Like if we really, really just told the real truth of our lives. I'm not saying that it's true. I'm saying that it's my truth. You're listening to Hammered. Being without a job set off a panic in me that was kind of like a low-grade fever. And it was with me 24 hours a day. My car was still broken down, and I was just worrying. It was like I was addicted to worry. Worry was my new drug of choice, worry and anxiety. Well, this one particular night, I'd been listening in the meetings for a pretty long time now, and I remember them always saying, the time to call your sponsor is before you drink, not after. And they said, you call before you drink, and they will show you how much they love you. You call them after you drink, and they will show you how much they love them. And I didn't get that really, but I decided that I would call my sponsor, Eileen, because I didn't have the nerve just to call her and say, hey, I really need to hang out, or I need to talk, or I need to to just be with somebody right now. I couldn't do that. I couldn't be that vulnerable. So I went to, I walked up to the store. There was a convenience store right in front of the apartment complex. So I walked up there, and I took a quarter, and I called her, and she answered, and it was quarter till midnight, And I told her that I was about to go into the Magic Market convenience store and buy a 12-pack of beer. And she said, don't move. Wait right there, and I'll come get you. And she had this old beat-up Mazda 626 or something like that. My intentions were not to go in and buy beer. I was being dishonest. I really just wanted her to come get me. And I knew that that would be a way to have her come get me because I was too pathetic to just say, I'm hurting and let's just talk on the phone or I had to be all dramatic. And so she came, there I was standing, leaning against the the front of the store and she pulled up and I got in the car and we went to Denny's, the old go-to because they were open 24 hours. And we sat in the Denny's and I kept trying to convince her that I was just going to hell because of the gay thing. 
And she would just like shake her head and go, oh my God, kind of like get off the cross. You just keep talking about it. But I couldn't, I could not grasp the concept of a loving God. I just, I was raised in such Southern Baptist hell that to me, that was never going to be a part of my life. I was so afraid of God. I was so afraid of what all that meant. It just meant there would be no more fun in life, that everything was going to be just, I'll pretend like I'm happy. But we sat there at four o'clock in the morning, which always seemed to be the magic number. But she talked about how God talks through people. And I kept saying, well, how? I mean, they're alcoholics. She said, you listen. Just listen in those rooms and you'll hear God. But you have to listen, Jill. And she had a sponsor. And her sponsor was a woman named Gail. Now, I never, ever had talked to this woman and I had seen her, and to me, she was just kind of like a, an average sort of housewife woman with kind of a hairdo and very quiet, and she kept to herself. It seemed like people liked her, and they would kind of flock around her. She had green eyes and the kind of blonde hairdo-ish. She was a nurse, and she had very kind eyes, and she had a very kind smile. She never raised her hand. I never saw her raise her hand, ever. But it was interesting because my sponsor, Eileen, sometimes she would, if I would get into some turmoil with her, or some argument with her, she would say, let me check with Gail. Now, mind you, she's got a year of recovery, which is not a long time. So she would refer to her sponsor, which would kind of be like my grand sponsor, kind of like your grandmother. But she would refer to Gail, and then she'd get back to me. Well, I would sit in the meetings, and I, I tried to take it to heart what she said, like I'm really going to pay attention. Well, this women's meeting was starting to kind of be my favorite because it was smaller, I could hear better, and it just seemed a little more intimate. And there was one Saturday morning, and there was this one girl, and I'd been hearing her a little bit. She kind of scared me. She was very monotone, and she said, My name's Lisa, and I'm a drug addict and an alcoholic. And she was an attractive girl. When she started telling some of her story, and she'd been like the cheerleader in high school, she'd been the homecoming queen. She kind of looked like Natalie Wood. and But she was real monotone, almost expressionless. But then she started talking about how she had been found in a hotel room after turning tricks and she had a hypodermic needle hanging out of her arm after shooting, attempting to shoot up Jack Daniels because she'd run out of drugs. She talked about being in a hospital bed at Georgia Regional Hospital, chained to the bed with a fucking dog collar around her neck, wearing a diaper. 
she talked about the turmoil and the anguish in her parents' eyes and how she had ruined her family and how over and over and over she would try to get sober and she couldn't and she had lost everything. And so then after the meetings, people would kind of stir around and gossip and they'd talk about how she was manic depressive and how she had to take lithium and how, boy, you can tell when Lisa doesn't take her lithium because she's a lot more dry and honest. And But I think this monotone stuff must have come from the medication. But I sat and I listened to her and... I knew, I knew in my core, as sure as I'm sitting here, that there was some sort of spirit or something talking through that girl. Because she rang a bell in me, and she kept me from drinking one more day. And it was people like that that spoke from this raw brutal, honest place that was painful to listen to and hard to listen to, but so necessary because it would scare the shit out of me. And I would see these lines in her face and she wasn't old. And there was another girl they called Little Debbie, not to be confused with the, the snack, but she was very tiny, almost like she her growth had been stunted or something. And this girl would come in so beat up and so battered. Oh, it just would break your heart. And she had to buy children's clothes because she was so small. But she had two kids, and that really blew my mind that she was such a small person and she had kids and had been divorced and... God, she would be so beaten and tattered. And she would say, I'm going to try again. And when she would talk, I would listen to her. And by her going out there and getting battered and beat up one more time, it would totally keep me sober one more day. And I started kind of putting it together. It was like, are these people kind of like the sacrifices are these people like the Jesuses that are getting on the cross and getting crucified? Are they crucifying their self? What the fuck is going on? But day after day after day, I would listen. Well, my friend Michael, who had been my little guardian angel, he had gotten a little bit older now, and he had a car. He had this yellow Chevrolet Citation with tan interior, he was becoming this beautiful boy. He had he was about 19, 20, I don't even remember, but he really looked like George Michael, the singer from Wham. And he was starting to realize that he was gay. He always sort of knew it, but it was something we just didn't talk about. He tried to have girlfriends and all that, but we had stayed in touch and I asked him if he would go to some meetings with me, and he would go. He was such a, he was just such a good friend. He would go and, you know, they're closed meetings, so it's alcoholics only, but they would come around the room, and he'd go, I'm Michael, and I'm an alcoholic, and he'd pretend to be an alcoholic just so he could sit there with me. 
And I told him, you know, I found that there were these gay meetings. And it was weird because I felt like I was doing something wrong. And I said, will you go with me to these gay meetings? And there was this gay AA club downtown called the Galano Club. And he said he would go with me. And so we went to these gay AA meetings. Well, this really did a number on my self-esteem because now I'm in the light of day. I'm with gay people who aren't drunk and aren't drinking. But for me, it was almost like being at a gay bar without the alcohol. Because I noticed the people looking people up and down and kind of sizing you up. And I was still very uncomfortable with my weight and my looks. My ego was fucking crushed. But I would kind of go in there and I don't know what I was expecting. I think my motive was to try to meet somebody. I think deep down I wanted to meet somebody and I thought, well, I could go to these meetings and hang out and maybe meet somebody. Well, I remember seeing this one girl and I had that memory of the gay bar the night that I got thrown out. And the announcer announced, ladies and gentlemen, help me welcome the sex kitten of Atlanta, Suzanne. And she had come in like with a fur coat. You know, they treated uh, drag people like royalty. It was kind of hilarious. Well, she was in this meeting. She was real good looking. And I was scared of her, you know. But there she was. And she was with this this other woman, maybe that person might have been about five years older than her. And I'd heard some people like over talking about it, like whispering, like, yeah, she's a doctor. So the sex kitten of Atlanta was with this doctor whose name was Susan. And she was sort of distinguished. And, you know, there was like a click. There were clicks of people I noticed in this gay club And I didn't feel welcome. I felt really weird. And one thing I started realizing about myself is that I don't fit in the gay world and I don't fit in the straight world. I don't I don't know where I fit. I did kind of feel like I fit where my old, you know, the old biker AA club that I'd been going to. I sort of felt like I fit in there more. Well, sometimes at night, I would get so scared that I was going to drink. I would drive all the way downtown and there was a a place called the, uh, the Triangle Club and they had these midnight meetings and it was candle lit. Well, there were a lot of AIDS victims there. So I started attending these meetings. Now you talk about a reality check. There's no time for ego. There's no time to sugarcoat. These men were dying of AIDS. And I and, and it's almost like I still couldn't take it in. I would sit there with them and I would listen. I never talked. I just listened. But there was something in that room. There was something in that candle-lit room, even in the silence. There was some sort of energy that was different. 
and I could feel it. It was different than any church I'd ever been in. It was different than any AA room that I had been in so far. But I sat and I listened, and sometimes it would just be silent because they would not call on you. When they opened up the meeting, they said, we will let you speak if you want to speak, but nobody's going to call on anybody. And so there would be these like periods of silence and I would get real uncomfortable. But something attracted me to keep going back. And so when I would get in these nighttime cravings, I would head down there and I would just sit my ass in that chair and listen and feel those feelings. There was another person at Rebos, the AA club. By the way, I finally asked somebody, what does Rebos stand for? R-E-B-O-S. And this lady started laughing and she said, it's sober backwards. S-O-B-E-R. And I went, oh my God. Like I would have never, ever, ever figured that out. Well, there was a man, and he sat over at a table by himself, and he didn't smoke. Most of the people smoked, and there'd be like a 100 people in there smoking. It was a fog. But this particular man, he had this face. He was older, pretty old. I would say maybe late 70s, maybe even early 80s. I don't know. But he had this kind of skin that almost looked like a facelift, but not, not weird facelift, almost like somebody had sanded his cheeks. He had these like kind of rosy cheeks and he wore glasses and his hair, you know, he had a little bit of hair kind of slick back. He always dressed real nice and his name was Bob Kanat. And he always said his last name, which was a rare thing in these meetings. And sometimes... At the very end, they would go, Bob, do you want to wrap it up? And he'd have his hands perched kind of like steeple, like a steeple in front of himself. You know, like you're praying. He'd have his little hands in front of himself. And he'd smile and his lips, his lips almost looked sanded like his cheeks. Smooth. His face was smooth, but he was old. And... Maybe he was Irish, I don't know, but, but there was something about him. And so he would say, my name is Bob Kanat, and I'm an alcoholic. And the room would say, hi, Bob. And he'd look around real quiet. He'd pause, and he would say, if nobody has told you today that they love you, then I'm going to tell you right now that I love each and every one of you. And then he talked about his wife, who had MS, who was bedridden. And he talked about how much he loved her. And he would take that hour a day to leave and to come to the meeting. He had somebody that would stay with her for that hour. And he talked about how she was the love of his life. And 
he was so proud to have the opportunity that he could stay home with her. And he had worked for Lockheed his whole life and had a pretty good retirement. He was so non-judgmental. And another thing he would say before he would end his little talk is he would say, and all I want to say is don't give up five minutes before the miracle happens because the best is yet to come. And that'd be the end of it. Well, every time that he spoke, it was like E.F. Hutton, like everybody listened, like it was like, oh my God. And I really started remembering what Eileen told me. God speaks through people. And it was amazing to me when I would actually really open my ears and really drop the judgment and just try to hear a message of some type. There were so many people in these rooms. There were so many opinions in these rooms I was overwhelmed to a degree, but I just kept going, I kept coming back, I kept going, I kept coming back. Well, I'd been looking for jobs, and this was getting pretty scary. And Susan and I would hang out in the daytime. She would come pick me up in her big old car, and it was like I was in fucking high school or something. And we would laugh our heads off and she'd say, just stay over at my house and eat my parents' food. And, you know, there was always this kind of joke about it. And I'm like, I have an apartment. And my roommate, Vince, was kind of getting irritated. Like, what are you going to do? You have a job. What are you going to do? And I'm like, I'm looking, I'm looking. And I would look in the paper, but it was just, I couldn't, I didn't know what to do. But I'd seen this one truck all around Atlanta called Gibbs Landscaping, G-I-B-B-S. And it had a, the logo had like a little thumb and forefinger. Looks like it was planting something. They had this interesting little logo. And so I had seen like they had a place off of South Cobb Drive or, and I noticed it was like a, a headquarters, kind of an office with trucks and all that. And I finally got up my nerve and I went there and I walked in and I asked if I could fill out an application and they asked me if I had any experience and I lied and said yes. And so they gave me an application and I started filling it out. And so finally this guy came in and he called me back and and he said, well, what kind of experience do you have? And I just started making up shit and I told him that, you know, I'd had my own little business as a teenager mowing lawns. And I did. I mean, I had three lawns when I was eight years old. I mean, I always worked. So he sort of looked at me sort of like, eh. And then he was like, well, we'll give you a chance. And so they hired me and it was a very low salary, very bad, very low hourly rate. And I remember my daddy, he finally called me and he was very pissed off. He was very mad once he got the word that I had quit. And he goes, well, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I got a job, Daddy. Doing what? And I said, "Um, it's with a landscape company. Ah, how much are they going to pay you, $2 an hour? And I didn't say, oh, it was five, you know, which wasn't far off. But he said, well... I guess I'll see you on the the Atlanta news and the soup lines. 
he was so mean. He was really mean about it. And it really hurt me, and I felt sick. But I said, okay, well, you know, bye. And he pretty much quit talking to me. It was kind of a deal breaker that I walked away from Kodak. But I knew in my gut, there was still that thing in my gut that was saying, just move forward, move forward, don't look back, move forward. So the first day of my landscaping job, I didn't really have apparel to to wear, but I had a pair of painter's pants and a t-shirt and I guess they would have they were going to give me a uniform, but they said just show up. So I came and had on some tennis shoes and they said you're going to go with these two guys. And so these these two guys look like they look like the kind of guys that work outside, typical kind of reddish blondish hair that's been bleached out with the sun and sort of freckly, but their freckles had tanned. They they almost looked like brothers or twins or something. Big full heads of hair, lots of uh, beard, mustache, kind of handlebar, real thick, you know, kind of Fu Manchu mustaches, you know, and they thought they were real cool. Well, I got in the back seat of this truck, and this is when trucks first started kind of having back seats they were real small and I got in the back and they were in the front and they barely spoke to me and they took me to Cross Creek condominiums which were kind of a real high-end sort of condominium place off Howell Mill Road off of 75 in Atlanta and they pulled in and we got out and they took out a weed eater and a gas can, and they sat it down on the parking lot, and they pointed down that there's this long creek bank, and one of the guys, he's like, all right, uh, you just, you got to go down there and just weed eat all that and clean that up, and we'll be back to get you in a little while, and I was like, oh, shit, okay, so they literally left me standing there in a parking lot with this gas can and this weed eater. I mean, I didn't really even know how to start the weed eater. So I started trying to figure it out. I finally figured it out. I got the thing going. So I started weed eating. Well, I didn't have safety glasses or ear protection or water or food or anything. And this is July, maybe beginning August. It was hot. And I got so thirsty that I started just going down in the creek and drinking the water out of the creek. I couldn't believe that those motherfuckers left me there. Well, I got madder and madder and madder. And I kept weed-eating and weed-eating. And, well, I just went crazy. Because I thought, you know what? I know how to work. Are you kidding? I know how to fucking work. I was raised by a fucking tyrant. I know how to work. Well, I cleaned that bank. And we're talking this thing had to be... I mean, it seemed like a half a mile at least to me. It really was a long stretch after I had weed-eated down all the weeds and the debris and the brush, I 
now there were like sticks and limbs and things like that. So I would take those and throw them down in the creek to hide them. I cleaned that embankment that, I mean, you couldn't believe how clean it was. It was like broom swept clean. When these two jokers showed back up, probably 3.34 o'clock that afternoon, their jaw dropped and they looked and they could not believe what I'd done. And so I think their little snickering was cured at that point. We got in the truck and they sort of looked at each other and I could smell marijuana. You know, they'd probably been out smoking pot all day and do nothing. And they took me back to the shop. And so then it was sort of like a fight over who was going to take me with them because they could use me to their benefit. And it was very hard. It was very hard. And my ego just had to just sit over in the corner because I wanted to just punch them in the face. Well, I'd still been talking to my friend Terry. You know, she'd gotten sober and... She called me one night and she said, oh, I've got this job. I got this new job. And I said, where? And she says, it's with this new company that's moving to Atlanta. Out of, they're, they're from Tampa. Now, she was a floral designer at Rich's department store, which eventually became Macy's. And back then, they used to have a pretty high-end floral department. And she was a very talented florist. And she said, yeah, there's this, it's this company and, and one of the bosses, um, they're, they're, I think she's in recovery and I can put in a good word for you if you want. And I was like, really? She goes, yeah, and they pay really well. And so she told this company and she called me back a couple of days later and she goes, she gave me a phone number. She goes, all you got to do is call them. Just call them and you can probably get an interview and what have you. And so I called and I went and I met with this woman and her name was Rosemary. And she was real funny and she was kind of overweight and wore glasses and curly brown hair. And she cussed a lot and I liked her. She was, you know, she was kind of like my people. Like she was funny. Well, it was so interesting because she looked at me at one point. She said, are you a friend of Bill's? And I, I was scared to answer. But Bill, when, when that's like code for are you in AA, Bill is Bill Wilson, who was the founder of AA. And so if you want to find out if somebody's in recovery or in Alcoholics Anonymous, you say, are you a friend of Bill's? So she said, are you a friend of Bill's? And I hesitated, and then I said, uh, yeah, and I thought, oh, God, is this going to be a deal breaker? Because I thought maybe she would judge me and not hire me. And she goes, good for you. How long? And I said, nine months. Nine months. That's amazing. Well, she hired me, and it, this was so exciting. She goes, I'm a friend of Bill's, too. And I said, you are? And she said, yeah, three years. I said, wow, three years. And so this was very exciting because it was like I didn't have to worry that it would be like a big drunk fest every night after work. And at that second, I had this 
little bit of this belief, this tiny, tiny little belief, could this be coincidental? Or could this be some form of a miracle? Don't give up five minutes before the miracle happens, Bob Kanat would say at the end of every meeting. The best is yet to come. And I really got it that this right here was not a coincidence. Hammered is recorded and produced in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Asheville, North Carolina. It's narrated by Jill Haney, produced by Maggie Briggs and Jill Haney, and with sound design, editing, and music by Alexander Rodriguez. Our beautiful artwork was created by Lauren Caddick, and we'd like to send a special thanks out there to Minnie and Robin. You can check out our website, podcasthammer.com, and follow us on social media for updates.